think our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. You want to do that? Yeah, do it now. Dave is coming around to hand out the uh, highly professionally done men's retreat brochure uh, that he spent hours and hours on. Um, So, men, you need to take one of those, fill it out, write out a check, and uh, give it back to us so that... You can come on the men's retreat. And uh, that's how that works. It's in February, and it will be a great time and really important. And uh, we're looking forward to it. So, and we're going to hound you to death if you don't sign up. So that's probably not a very nice biblical thing to say, but we want everybody there, all the men. So... uh, You want to get out your message outline. Why is doing that? I have one more thing to pass out. Being the start of Advent, I do need a couple of helpers here. Let me get this band off. There we go. And every family should get one of these. Oh, I got plenty more. And this year we decided, uh, rather than write our own Advent devotional, we were able to get these at a really good price. This is a seek and find devotional for each day. And so we have one for each family. And uh, if you would uh, take one for your family, then uh, you can do this over Advent and bring you right up to Christmas. And it... uh, Sort of a Christian version of those uh, I Spy books. But um, that looks like a lot of fun. And we obviously have some extras for those that aren't here. If you need another one, there they will be there. And I'm forgetting. Art, Kelly's Orchestra is playing this afternoon. Holiday concert in Round Hill somewhere. The old, the Round Hill Community Center, the old Round Hill School at three o'clock. Okay, and it's the Kelly Arrington Orchestra, <laughs> the Piedmont Regional Orchestra holiday concert, three o'clock uh, today in Round Hill. So another excellent way to kick off your Advent season. You want to get out your sermon outline. So that you can follow along and open your Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm finishing John 3 today as we uh, race through the book of John. John chapter 3 verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. 
Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to your word and we ask that you would open it to us, that we might hear and understand and apply and believe. We ask that you would do that uh, amongst us and in midst of us and in each one of us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a big decade for George, George Hinkapee. I know you all have heard of him. Probably been the most exciting decade of his life. After all, several times, many times, George has won one of the most famous international sporting events, the Tour de France. Great bicycling event. Hard work paid off for this cyclist from Greenville, South Carolina, as well as for several other relatively unknown cyclists, including Roberto Harris and Josea Rubiera. These men, all winners of the Tour de France. But what about that other guy, the famous one, Lance Armstrong? Didn't he win the Tour de France like seven years in a row? And didn't he do it after beating cancer a few years back? And wasn't it one of the top sports stories of the decade? Yes, 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 and yes. So who in the world is George Hinkapee? Well, George is a master cyclist who is a specialist on long, flat stretches of road. His expertise lies in catching up with the other riders who break out of the pack. And Roberto is a specialist. He's one of cycling's best hill climbers. And his job is to lead the competitors on a merry chase up the steep hills until they're too tired to keep going. These two men, along with six others, make up Lance Armstrong's winning team. And they have different roles. And part of the strategy is to, in a sense, wear out the other teams and... Um, keep their team towards the front so ultimately Lance can win the race. And even when they ride, you'll often see there's Lance Armstrong and there's like a guardian 
of other bicyclists, the other members of the team actually form a circle around him so no other bicyclist can hit him and knock him over and knock him out of the race. Lance only wins because he has George and Roberto and Hosea and a number of other guys that are on his team. They each play a very unique and very crucial role. And even though cycling awards medals to the individual riders, it's considered a team sport. Winning the Tour de France alone is considered an impossibility even for a superstar like Lance Armstrong. Now, do you think those other riders who play key roles, critical, Lance can't win without them, but you never hear about these guys. They're not on the cover of Sports Illustrated. They don't get Sportsman of the Year. They don't get to host Saturday Night Live. How do they feel when Lance gets all the attention? I'm sure from time to time, you know, they wonder about that because they worked real hard too, and they played their role. But they've all apparently decided that in a team sport, it's better to be on the best team than to compete alone. Think about that. Because as believers, we're part of a team. that We may call it a church. But we're part of a team. And we work and learn and pray and sacrifice and invest ourselves so that another gets recognized and that another receives the praise. And probably from time to time, we struggle with the question of who's getting the attention. We forget who the true leader is, and we silently and quietly try to take over. But deep inside, we know it's all about him. And so our goal as a team and as team members is to increase his glory. And to some degree, that's what today's passage is all about in John 3, playing a unique and crucial role in the kingdom of God so that Jesus would be exalted and people would look to him and follow him. And our model for this in today's passage is John the Baptist, who said it this way, he must increase, but I must decrease. So let's dive into our text this morning, and we start with Jesus' disciples. Very short, verse uh, 22. We've come towards the end of chapter 3, and we're getting this fourth passage in a row where Jesus fulfills and surpasses the law of the Old Testament. And at the beginning of chapter 2, we read about Jesus providing the new wine of the gospel, which replaced the old water of the law and rendered the stone jars of purification obsolete. And then in the last part of chapter 2, we saw the old temple was no longer needed since Christ replaced it as well as replacing the need for sacrifice. And at the beginning of chapter 3, we read about Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about being born of water and spirit in addition to replacing the old requirements of obedience to the law as a condition of salvation with the new need for spiritual rebirth. And over and over and over again, the Apostle John is showing us that the Lord Jesus Christ is really and truly the Son of God, and that he's bringing dramatic change to our lives, and if we believe in him, then we'll receive eternal life. We start our passage today 
by reading verse 22. After this, and this was the meeting with Nicodemus, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and he's finished his conversation with him. And it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Jesus and the disciples, they've left their meeting with Nicodemus, and they've headed for the hills, so to speak. They went off to be by themselves and spend some time together. And it's important for us to note that even the Lord Jesus needed to take some time off and get away, to relax, rest, recover, recuperate. For those of us who are raised in a highly competitive world like virtually all of you, this is a really easy lesson to read about and a really hard lesson to put into practice. And yet here we see the Lord Jesus Christ, sent by God the Father, given to us to be the Savior of the world, found it necessary to get away and spend some quiet time with his disciples. Jesus went on a men's retreat. You have no excuse. That's not in here. I just kind of threw that in. But the key phrase that is here is rendered, and he remained there with them, uses a Greek word, uh, diatribin. We get our word diatribe from it. And it literally means to rub hard or to rub through. And the idea is of rubbing shoulders with others long enough to get in and become part of their lives. What greater need do we have than to get away and spend some time rubbing shoulders with the Lord so that he can get in and become a greater part of our lives. And then we get to verse 23. The very next verse, and all of a sudden we switch groups, and our focus is moved from Jesus and his disciples to John the Baptist and his disciples. And now we read about the testimony of John's disciples. Now John here is John the Baptist. Verse 23. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Well, it starts off here, it seems to be some sort of clash going on over the issue of ceremonial washing, the practice of Jewish ritual purification. And there were people who uh, were once again bringing into question John's baptizing, uh, just like they did back in chapter 1. Did it really count? Did it count for purification? Was it really necessary? And this minor quibbling and quarreling turns into a full-blown argument. And they argue over the old. They argue over the old, and that should be the first blank there in your outline. They're frustrated by their debate over the fine points of how to fulfill Old Testament law. And so both sides, the the Jew or the Jews that were there and John's disciples, turn their sights elsewhere. Nothing turns enemies into friends as quickly as joining together to attack a mutual threat. And so the debaters direct their anger towards someone else. They point to Jesus. 
And so they go to John the Baptist and they point out the one who recognizes neither side of their argument. And he doesn't recognize either side of the argument because he's bringing in the new. And when the new is presented, it's a waste of time to argue over the old. And even today, we do this all the time. People look for points of disagreement between Christians so they can weigh in with their opinion and argue the fine points of Christian practice. And often they don't realize they're sowing seeds of distrust and discord and discontent. We cannot force others to believe the same way we do. And we're not able to argue them into the kingdom of God. And we shouldn't try. Because when we do try to argue people into the kingdom, it usually becomes divisive and discouraging to the other believers around us. We should share what Christ has done and what his love means to us. And that's how John the Baptist handles the situation here in this passage. He ended the theological argument by focusing on his devotion to following Christ. And this silences John's disciples because they failed to follow. They failed to follow. Not only did they waste time arguing over the old and the obsolete, they blew the opportunity before them because they failed to follow Jesus. John's disciples knew better. They'd heard John testify about Christ, but because they're bound by their traditions, they stayed with the old. And when confronted with their error, they made it worse. Rather than correct it, they embraced it. See, they tried to blame Christ instead of following him. Can you just hear them in verse 26? Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And it just sounds whiny. John, what are you going to do about this? Well, we know not everyone is going to Jesus yet because in verse 23 it said that John himself is still baptizing. But in frustration, his disciples exaggerate the case. Not unlike we say sometimes, you know, I tried to call him on the phone, but I couldn't get through. I must have called him dozens of times. You know, did we really try dozens of times or did it just seem like a lot? And that's what's happening here. John's disciples are exaggerating the situation because they're tired, frustrated, and they resent Jesus' presence. They don't really understand the big picture. And ultimately, they're worried, and they're worried about John. John, your, your star is sinking. Your ministry is diminishing. What are we going to do? And the implication is that they're not going to allow John to take a back seat to anyone else. The disappointment of watching the ebbing of a ministry that had once been a great flood, the anger towards those that were turning away. We already saw two of John's disciples leave. Andrew was one of them. And John too, and go and follow Jesus. So they've already lost some of the people that they had. The resentment over the success that Jesus is having. And largely by the words of John the Baptist himself. And, and sort of the overall embarrassment that they're not the big ministry on the block anymore. It's a very human reaction on the part of John's disciples. You know, we could apply it to virtually any field, business, sports, families. We want to be the number one group, 
the number one person. We want to be the big kid on the block, the big kid in school. And I'm sure it was a temptation for John himself. I mean, he'd spent years of loneliness and self-denial out in the wilderness, you know, doing the whole locusts and honey thing. And then finally came back, big entrance, big ministry, a lot of people coming out to hear him. And having experienced the headlines and the success, it's all starting to fade away. This other guy has come. It would have been easy for John to yield to a very natural impulse to assert himself, try to regain his position. And now John's disciples had attached themselves so firmly to John the Baptist, they refused to be detached. And it's so easy to be content with whatever good we have that we cut ourselves off from something better. The truth of the old saying, the good is the biggest enemy of the best. These followers of John the Baptist are a good illustration of that. They've heard John's preaching. They realized their own sinfulness. They'd repented and they'd been baptized. And I imagine it was a wonderful spiritual experience, a very heady time for them. But they'd also heard John's teaching as plainly as he could. He had pointed people to Jesus. He had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had said, follow him. But the disciples were quite content to stay where they were. They might have gone on to receive all that fellowship with Jesus meant. They might have entered into the kingdom of God. They might have experienced continued spiritual growth by being with Jesus. But they chose to remain at the first stage of repentance. Now, don't get me wrong. Repentance is important. We're going to talk about that later during communion. It opens the door to many blessings. If you don't but if you don't continue on in the Christian life, then you eventually cut yourself off from those same blessings. Throughout the Gospels, we hear the call to repent and believe. And John's disciples stopped at repent. And they got so wrapped up in their own experience, they missed the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Christians do this all the time today. We fail to realize we're called to continued spiritual growth. In order to maintain our witness as salt and light in an ever-increasing, tasteless, and dark world, we have to spend time with the Lord. We need to open our Bibles. We need to be talking with God. We need to be doing that every day, as often as we can. doesn't mean you have to take three hours. Maybe take three minutes. But you need to be doing that. But sometimes we get stuck. We get stuck on a particular experience or a particular lesson or a particular group or a particular object in the church. And we sort of circle our wagons around that thing that we've set aside and we just simply fail to move on. And our spiritual growth comes to a crashing halt because we haven't kept our eyes on our Savior and we fail to follow him. We get wrapped up in this experience or this thing or that person, and we just stop. And the failure of John's disciples should be a warning for all of us. So how does John respond to his disciples? We have verse 27, the testimony of John. He begins his answer with an appeal to God's sovereignty. Verse 27, 
John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And first off, John is reminding his disciples that God's in control of all that's happening around them. He wants them to know that you have what God gives. You have what God gives. No one can receive anything unless it's given to him or to her by the Lord, i.e. all gifts come from heaven, which is what we read in the book of James, chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so John then applies that same principle to himself. For him to wish that he was someone else, and in this case, for him to wish that he was Jesus. That he was called to serve in a way that would make him more prominent, that would make him more popular. It's simply covetousness by another name. Be a form of jealousy hidden under the cloak of ambition. Not that any of us would have any experience with that. And John is teaching his disciples, there's no place for envy you have what God gives you, and you need to be faithful with what you have. And to be faithful with what you have means there must be the work of the Holy Spirit going on in our lives. All men and women are able to hear and understand the gospel. But you must have the Holy Spirit actively working in your heart and mind in order for you to receive and believe the gospel. And John reminds his disciples they've heard and understood his witness to Christ. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The word witness here is a technical term. It means that's a very specific meaning. It's translated from the Greek word martyrit, from which we get our English word martyr, which means somebody who dies for the faith. But technically, martyr means to be a witness, to be legally bound by what you have said. And we apply the title of martyr to those who have died in their witness. So martyr is not simply a Christian who dies. It's a Christian who dies in their witness for Christ. I mean, if you're called to the court as a witness in a case, uh, you know that when you testify, you have to tell the truth. Otherwise, you can be crime, uh, charged with the crime of perjury, which is lying about your witness. And John has pointed out to his disciples that they can testify, as they did back in verse 26, that John pointed out Christ and testified to him. And John is saying he doesn't mind being held to his words, to his testimony, to his witness, that the disciples heard and understood that witness, and now it's time for them to accept it and believe it and follow Jesus. And we very quickly realize that John meant what he said. He's telling his disciples, you follow my example. You follow my example. John knew his gifts. He was content with his role. 
And he knew that our life and service to God would be more fulfilling if we used our gifts and functioned in our roles and lived our lives in a faithful manner than if we spent our time complaining that, you know, we didn't get such and such or we didn't have that gift or get that call or have that role that we thought we should have. It's better when God's servants are content to serve well where God's placed them. And what matters is God's purpose and having the humility and the conviction to carry that forward, and that's essential. John's disciples failed to follow Jesus because they failed to follow John's example. He teaches in verse 29. It's a wonderful passage here. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Of course, we know from the rest of the New Testament that the bride is the church and the bridegroom is Christ. And John is the friend and it's a good role. It's a joyful role and he's content with it. And he portrays his feelings towards the ministry of Christ in this superbly rich illustration, the Hebrew wedding. That's what he's talking about. He's saying he's like the best man. The closest uh, analogy we have today. See, in Hebrew culture, the friend of the bridegroom had a number of very specific jobs. And one of the most important jobs that he had is he is to guard, stand guard outside the bridal chamber. For in those days, brides were sometimes stolen. So the best friend of the bridegroom, the one whom the groom trusts above all others, stands guard, and he's called the Soshben. And after the wedding and the reception is over, the bride retires to the bridal chambers, and the groom sees everyone off, makes sure all arrangements have been made for their care, and while he's taking care of the guests, the Soshben is guarding the bride. And finally, the bridegroom comes to the bride, and the Sashben recognizes his voice and lets him in. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. It's a somewhat dangerous job in that culture. You take the most trusted person, and he basically says, I am going to put my life on the line to protect your bride until you get here. And that's what's happened. Jesus has arrived. Christ has come to his people. And John the Baptist's job is done. John the Baptist has served faithfully as the Sashben to Jesus. And he finishes the section by declaring that he, Christ, must become greater. He must increase and that I, John, must become less. He must decrease. And I thought about that tremendous statement. And I was struck by the question, what direction is Christ moving in my life? And I didn't particularly like that question that once I thought of it. But we'll just get rid of that. That's, you know, gone to meddling now. 
Is Christ increasing in my life? Am I decreasing? In my day-to-day experience, am I going to Christ and turning my life over to him? What controls what I think, what I say, what I do? In my words, in my thoughts, in my actions, is Christ increasing and is self-decreasing? Or is it my own pride and selfishness? Is what I'm saying and thinking and doing pleasing to God or pleasing to me? We all need to stop and evaluate our lives. We all need to ask that question. Is Christ increasing in my life and is self-decreasing? Way down deep where it really matters in our lives, is Christ increasing and is self-decreasing? That's a serious question. And furthermore, we must be careful here in listening to the testimony of John. Verse 31, John's testifying. He who comes from above is above all. And then he says, verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So the first thing we see is that his place is above all. John is teaching them and us that Jesus must become greater in our lives because he's already been placed above all by God. We're from the earth. We cannot be placed above Jesus in reality, even if that's what we want to happen temporarily. The one who is in reality above all has invited each one of us to have a personal relationship with him. It's a living relationship that begins with a spiritual rebirth. And then it's a loving relationship where we desire to please him in all that we do. And we want him to increase in our life. And in response, he transforms our life from the inside out. And third, it's a learning relationship. For he's the faithful witness who shares God's truth with us. And as we accept them and believe the words of his testimony, he will make them a part of our life which means his word must be accepted. His word must be accepted. The text says that accepting Jesus' testimony certifies that God is truthful. Now that sounds kind of odd. But verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. It's an acknowledgement that what Christ says has come from God and that God is with him when he says it. And it's certified by God, so to speak. To certify something means to set a seal on it. And that's the way an official uh, edict or proclamation would have come about in that day. The seal of Rome would be put on something, a a letter, and have all the power of the emperor behind it. And even for someone who couldn't read it, they would understand that seal. They would know this is a true command from Rome. And that's what the Apostle John is saying about receiving Jesus' words. That anyone who accepts the testimony of this one from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, and certifies it or sets his seal to it, is telling everyone that this is what he's received and what he really believes to be true. He's testifying to God's truth, and he backs up his words by living according to God's truth. And both John the Baptist And John the Apostle are making it very clear that we should be acting 
on what we've heard. And once again, we hear the call to choose between two alternatives in verse 36. John is repeating Christ's own message from earlier in the chapter, back in uh, 15, 16, and 17. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. A slightly small change here. He doesn't say whoever believes has the life and whoever does not believe says whoever does not obey, whoever does not put it into action, whoever does not act on what he's heard, whoever says, oh, I believe, I'm just not going to like do any of that Christian stuff. Is as James says, a man who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. It's not a call to some vague, uncertain belief, but it's a call to active and specific trust and unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The alternatives are very clear, and they're actually very simple. Believe and have eternal life, reject the Son, and remain under God's wrath. And he's implying here that disobedience is a form of rejection. Disobedience is a form of unbelief. And everything that can be done for you in order for you to go to heaven has already been done. Now it's a matter of belief versus unbelief, receiving Christ versus rejecting Christ. That's the alternative. I've been doing a lot of reading lately on apologetics, which is uh, defending the faith. And I came across a fascinating interview uh, that appeared a number of years ago in the New York Times with the Dalai Lama. He's sort of the nominal head of Buddhism. And uh, it was quite interesting interview. He was uh, refreshingly unspiritual. He was humorous and savvy and wise about the ways of the world and very much down to earth. And the obvious, the most obvious difference, uh, I thought, between his views and those of Christianity is his optimism about human nature. He obviously doesn't hold to the doctrine of total depravity. And uh, we're all just going to get better. And at one point in the interview, uh, the interviewer, and I don't remember the person's name, but they asked the Dalai Lama if he ever got angry. And he was sort of quiet and didn't really answer. So the interview thought he'd help him out. He said, you know, even Jesus got angry. And then it says the Dalai Lama got angry. And with some amount of exasperation, he said, don't compare me with Jesus. He is a great master, a great master. Don't compare me with Jesus. You got to love the Dalai Lama for that. But think for a moment about his other words. He is a great master. That's not the way that Christians would describe Jesus. The words great master in a Buddhist or a Hindu or a New Age context means something quite different from what the Christian faith affirms about Jesus. In Christianity, there are no great masters. There are only sinners in need of a savior. And Jesus is not a great master. He is the great master. And nor is he a master, at, <clears throat> excuse me, as uh, the Dalai Lama 
would define it as one who simply leads his disciples along the same path that he himself walks, that he himself treads. Jesus didn't say, I'll show you the way. He didn't say, let's walk together on the way. What did he say? John 14, 6, I am the way. Now, if those words were spoken by any other spiritual leader, including the Dalai Lama, we would judge him to have you know, gone off the deep end. And John the Baptist is in many respects the central figure of the Advent season, which starts today. These are his days. His divinely ordained role in the world is to do one thing, which we read in Matthew 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's not a great master that John the Baptist is proclaiming. He didn't say prepare the the way for another great master. He says prepare the way of the Lord. You see, the Christian faith is completely different from all other religions. Although it contains teaching, it's not built on teaching. And although it speaks of the truth, it's not built on truths. And although it describes spiritual experiences, it's not built on spiritual experiences. Alone among all the religions in the world, Christianity is built on a person. Not just on what he taught, but on what and who he was. Christianity is built on Jesus himself. Not just his teaching, not just his example, not just his works, but on his person. And the Advent season, coming as it does just before Christmas, is the right time for clarifying who Jesus is. And John the Baptist, the herald out of the wilderness, hails him in all four Gospels in unmistakable terms as the unique Messiah of God, the one in whose person the kingdom of God has arrived. And John's function in all the Gospels is to leave no doubt about who Jesus is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, John's left us with four ideas in this passage. First, God's in charge, not us. He spoke of God's sovereignty. Second, all service to God is significant. There's no room for envy. Third, joy comes from being faithful and obedient to what God's called you to do, not from some form of personal glory. And fourth, humility calls attention to Christ not to ourselves. So once again, we're left with a question. Two questions, actually. What is it that you really believe about Jesus? And the follow-up to that, are you willing to live according to what you really believe about Jesus? What do you believe, and will you live in accordance with what you believe? Think about that. We need to pray.